Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The year was 1965. One, two, two, Born on the back of a wind Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it sounds a little pool again Welcome to the John Lennon Hour with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of the John Lennon series. Volume 1, Should Have Been There. Volume 2, Shivering Inside. And Volume 3, She Loves You. Purchase your copy of the John Lennon series at johnlennonseries.com. Welcome, Beatles fans. This is the John Lennon Hour. Tower clock strikes in the cold night air And it's onward to Liddy Pool for me Home to Yes, it's 1965, and Martin Luther King Jr. has just begun a drive to register black voters. The New York Jets have signed quarterback Joe Namath. President Lyndon Baines Johnson's Great Society is at the very heart of his State of the Union address, and Beatles 65 has gone to number one and will stay there at number one for nine weeks. Hullabaloo premieres on NBC TV, and The Searchers have gone to number three with Love Potion number nine. The Beatles are appearing on Shindig, ABC TV, and The Birds have just recorded Mr. Tambourine Man. Shirley Ellis has a hit. It's number three. It's called The Name Game. And very sadly, British Prime Minister, the great Winston Churchill, has passed away in his state funeral at St. Paul's Cathedral in London is the largest state funeral ever. That, my friends, is just a few of the many events of January, January 1965. The entire year was like that, chock full of current events that changed the scope of what we know today and really who we are today. 1965 was a landmark year, and here to explore that impactful, influential time in our lives and in the careers and lives of the Beatles are four of the most distinguished authors in the United States. These four gentlemen will be appearing and speaking about this very topic, 1965, at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans coming up August 14th through the 16th at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare. And if you have not been to a Beatles Fest, you absolutely must go and meet these Four distinguished authors and experts who are with us tonight. They are Andrew Grant Jackson, author of 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music. Al Sussman, author of Changing Times, 101 Days That Changed the World, all about the events of late 1963 and early 1964. Very impactful time. Chuck Gunderson, 
author of a two-volume series, Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic North American tours. And, of course, our friend Bruce Spicer, author of The Beatles Are Coming, The Beatles' Swan Song, The Beatles' Solo on Apple Records, Beatles for Sale on Parlophone, and so, so many other great books. If you were with us just a few weeks ago, he was here talking about his newly enhanced and expanded version on all ebook formats of his classic work, The Beatles on Capitol Records. What a panel to talk about 1965, so let's bring him on the show. I believe this is, because I see that 504 area code, Bruce, let's see if he's there. Yes, I'm Are here. Are you there, sir? All oh, the way so from the great to state you. of Louisiana. <laughs> you got it. From New Orleans, the land we love. Thank you for being here, Bruce. Appreciate it so much. Glad to be back. It was a treat when you said you could come. We were all thrilled. Well, I think that this must be 818 area code, so I'm guessing that's Andrew. Let's see. Andrew, are you are you there? Yeah, thanks for having me back. We are so glad to have you back. And I forgot to mention your other book, Still the Greatest, about the Beatles, the Beatles during their solo careers, another phenomenal book. And you'll have that with you at the fest as well, right? Yes, thank you. Okie doke. And, and uh, where's Ringo, too? That's another one. <laughs> oh, yeah, where's Ringo? I love that one. And 201, that must be Al. Are you with us, my friend? Hi, Jude. How are you tonight? I am doing great. How are you from New York City? Good. And hi there, gentlemen. Hi. Hello, Al. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> one more, and that should be yes. Chuck. I don't recognize. Let's see if he's with us. Chuck, are you our 435? Hi, Jude. I'm here. Good, good. So glad to have every one of you. Well, you know, I always love it. I always look forward to it. Love talking to you guys. And nobody knows this period of history better than the four of you do. I mean, it's obviously from the books that you've written, really your wheelhouse. So we're going to jump right in. And, Al, I'm going to throw the first question out to you, and then we'll all jump in afterwards. But in order to understand 1965, we kind of have to backtrack a little bit and go back to 1964, and that's what you focus on in Changing Time. So if you could pick out just three or four of the big movements or events of 64 that impacted and continue to influence the Beatles in 65, what would it be? What would they be? These are perhaps not big moments, but they're definitely ones that uh, that kind of – um, as as uh, the phrase was, in a hard day's night, gave clues to the new direction. Right. Um, first of all, in back in February, and Bruce, correct me if I'm uh, if I've got the chronology wrong. Uh, in February, when uh, when the Beatles came to New York, um, uh, Sid Bernstein, who had uh, who was promoting the Beatles concert at Carnegie Hall took Brian Epstein over to Madison Square Garden, not the current garden, but the previous garden at uh, 8th Avenue and 50th Street, and mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the hopes of Brian saying, okay, why don't we do, why don't we do a show here, and yeah. perhaps on, on the next tour. So he, um, um, Brian looked and, and said, well, why don't, we, why don't we make it next time? Well, their popularity had um, had risen to the point by the following year that uh, that the, 
the Madison Square Garden as it was in those, in those days would not have been big enough to hold the kind of crowd that wanted to see the Beatles. Wow. Secondly, in that, that summer, of course, A Hard Day's Night was released. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody is, you know, there have been volumes about how how that movie kind of cemented the uh, the personalities of the Beatles and how much of, of an influence it had on uh, budding young musicians. Uh, well, for instance, and Andrew points this out in his uh, uh, in his book, um, the uh, the young folkies who would soon make up the birds were very mm-hmm. much influenced by Hard Day's Night, particularly as he was known in those days, Jim McGuinn, who very shortly thereafter went out and bought himself the same kind of 12-string Rickenbacker that, uh, that George Harrison was playing in A Hard Day's Night. And that, of course, became the instrument that uh, kind of symbolized the sound of the birds. Um, the, uh, now in October, the Beatles appeared on, on Shindig, um, Mm -hmm. the only time they ever appeared on that series. And one of the few times that they made an in-person appearance, uh, on a show other than the Ed Sullivan show that didn't, that wasn't simply a music video. And on that show, John Lennon performed a new song that they had just recorded called I'm a Loser, which mm-hmm. definitely um, looked toward the, um, the, the, you know, the, the continuing development of his, particularly of his songwriting, because he was becoming so much influenced by the writing of Bob Dylan. And so this right. was probably the first really overt Dylan influence. And then... Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as well, you've got the very rapid development of the songwriting abilities of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Uh, George was really still kind of in the apprentice uh, stage as a songwriter, but uh, but the, the the songwriting of Lennon and McCartney had had moved in just incredible uh, with incredible speed in, in the. Um, in the span of nearly, of really just about two years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there is really no comparison to the kind of songs that they were doing, say, in early 1963 and what they were mm-hmm. doing by the, by the end of 1964. And, of course, that would accelerate in 1965. So that's a little Absolutely. kind of a, yeah, a little taste of what was happening during 1964 that, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of... um, Kind of carried into 65. Yeah, Yeah, carried into 1965. And Bruce, the music is is really your area, so expand on that a little bit for us. Did you see that songwriting growth carrying on into 65, or did they kind of level off 64, 65? No, I mean, it was tremendous growth, but... The thing about the Beatles is think of them as the world's greatest sponge in that they soak Mm -hmm. up Chuck Berry, they soak up the Everly Brothers harmonies and all these things, the Motown sound, and then they release it into the world, giving it their own taste. Uh, Al gave a great example. Um, You know, the 
George puts on a 12-string Rickenbacker, and boom, folk rock's born. Uh, you know, just yeah. incredible things. You know, John interested in uh, in Bob Dylan, so he soaks up Dylan influences and comes back with, you know, I'm a loser, and later when we get to, to you know, 65, Nowhere Man. So you've got these uh-huh. tremendous things going on. Uh, the music is coming a little bit more complex. Uh, the songwriting from a lyric standpoint, with rare exception, is still pretty much, you know, Boy Loves Girl and things like that. But the music, you can tell, is beginning to to get more color to it, different uh, sounds, uh, trying different things in the studio at that time, and uh, the lyrics mm-hmm. soon follow. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to me because there's so many of John's early songs that are very, very autobiographical. I mean, I'll Cry Instead. Uh, there's so many that reflect the misery that's going on in his life. But he begins to release it a little bit more, but you know, you guys know, going back to live at the BBC, even the covers he selected were very autobiographical, and you know, it yeah, grows yeah. more after that. Yeah, well, he, Chuck, jump it, in there. What what did you see that is a holdover from '64 into '65, maybe through the tours? Yeah. So, so for me, for uh, 1964, I mean, first and foremost, it was having success in America. It was it was absolutely critical to the Be- to the Beatles forward movement. Let's face it, that first tour, uh, the summer North American tour, where they did 32 shows in 33 days in the United States and mm-hmm. Canada, basically crisscrossing all over the continent. Of course, won over a lot of fans and charted their future for future for more success. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, wore them out, absolutely nearly killed them, but paved the ground and got the roadwork done that would turn into what happened in 1965. And Andrew, you're really our 65 guru. I mean, your book about 65 being the most revolutionary year in music, this is your area. So what was 65 like for the Beatles? What did they accomplish that really stands out in your mind? I know we can't summarize it in just a short time that we have, but give it the high points. Let's see, uh, a couple of bullet points. Well, on January 1st, I Feel Fine was at top of the charts with uh, the first intentional use of feedback you know, uh, yep. on the record. Um, March 13th, eight days a week, went number one in the U.S., uh, March 27th, John and George were dosed without their knowledge with LSD by their dentist. <laughs> that sent them on a whole uh, new voyage. And uh, May 22, um, uh, Ticket to Ride charted, I, mean, I think it was the top of the charts, and that kind of had their further, uh, their, their kind of new development of Jangle Pop too, or the birds and, and them, they were both kind of perfecting that Jangle sound and uh July 19, uh, Lennon releases, um, or the Beatles release Help, and that kind of, uh, as uh, Al was talking about, reflects Dylan's, you know, influence, more confessional, introspective lyrics, and kind of that whole month they had, like a Rolling Stone, uh, you know, the Love and Spoonful, uh, Eve of Destruction, that was like the folk rock explosion month going on uh, July and uh of course the movie help comes out then and um mm-hmm. the the album came out august 6th i think and uh then the 15th they play shea stadium with the attendance oh, yeah. record 55,600 that'll stand until grand funk railroad knocks it down in 73 um, <coughs> yeah Chuck can talk about grand funk railroad <laughs> 
he's going to have to jump in on that in a minute. Okay, go ahead, Andrew. Uh, August almost done, but August twenty-four, they uh, they meet up with uh, some of the birds and Peter Fonda and do some more uh, tripping. Uh, then they visit Elvis a couple of days later. September twenty-five, their cartoon debuts. October nine, yesterday with the uh, string quartet. It, they're they're right in the vanguard of the Baroque kind of chamber pop movement with the, the Beach Boys and even the Stones yeah. later on. And uh, December 3, Rubber Soul, that kind of um, mm-hmm. ties together many of the different genres that year from R&B to folk, Baroque, and then the sitar, that kind of becomes an essential part of psychedelia. And, uh, you know, um, that that's the album that inspires Brian Wilson to do Pet Sounds. And um, so it was uh, an amazing, amazing 12 months for him. It was incredible. And just to be real clear for anyone who is listening and downloading this and may not be a big Beatles guru, they weren't drugged by their dentist in the dentist office in the dentist chair, right? Oh, yeah. It was at, a, I think, his house. He invited <laughs> them over to dinner. And then his girlfriend was at the worked at the Playboy Club, and they had gotten it from somebody who was connected to Timothy Leary, and they dropped it in their coffee, not even really knowing what it was. You know, they thought sounded it was an like, sounded like they had a wild dental experiment there for a minute. So, okay, you guys, jump in there on the Grand Funk Railroad thing. <laughs> well, you know, we, of course we laugh about Grand Funk Railroad, but they did a few good songs. Uh, you know, and by coincidence, today I was listening to a CD of Grand Funk Railroad in the car. Not what I normally do, but anyway, yeah. I think, you know. Well, I'm from we, Detroit. I love, the, I love them, by the yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. Talked, yeah. You know, and you mentioned like a Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stones, and, and another big influence. Keep in mind that John and Paul, when they were writing songs, this was unique for musical groups. Uh, you know, Buddy Holly was a rare exception, and you know, but for the most part, you didn't have songwriters, and the Stones had witnessed how quick John and Paul finished off I Want to Be Your Man, which was the Stones' second single, as well as a song on a Beatles album, and they started trying to write songs. And by the time you hit 1965, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards' songwriting is improving. They never quite reached the level of Lennon and McCartney, but right. they're spurred on to do it, uh, which is a really remarkable thing. Uh, you know, members of the Birds are not just doing covers of Bob Dylan or, or Pete Seeger's Turn, Turn, Turn. They're starting to write songs. So, you know, let's not forget the fact that one of the biggest influences of the Beatles was getting people to write their own songs. Right. Incredible stuff was being written. Yeah, yeah, not relying on Tin Pan Alley and all of the tried and true, but becoming truly creative and experimental and doing their own thing, absolutely. And and the thing I laugh about, about the Grand Funk Railroad, I feel the same way, I love them too, but the the thing is, of course, when they sold their tickets and, and upped the Beatles on attendance, we weren't talking mailing in your tickets in an envelope to Sid Bernstein by hand. We're talking using Ticketmaster-like venues to sell tickets. So there's, it's really comparing apples and oranges when you talk about them besting the Beatles' numbers. It's so you know, it's so funny. Oh. So um, Al, jump in here. What about the accomplishments of '65? What do you, what stands out for you? Well, just to expand on what you were just saying about. Grand Funk at Shea Stadium. Yeah. Um, they sold out Shea Stadium uh, mainly on the basis of several months of hype yes. from their yes. manager, manager Terry Knight. 
Uh, yes. The Beatles sold out Shea Stadium, and Chuck can certainly back me up on this, uh, mainly by word of mouth and radio yep. promotion, and not a right. lot of that. You know, it was uh, it shows you just how uh, at warp speed their popularity was moving. So we're now always... coming up on 20 minutes after the hour on the Grand Funk Show. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, we don't like it. <laughs> it's clear that we're like, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a different world. You know, it reminds me of the fact that when the Archbishop of Canterbury was killed in England, it took six months for the news to reach France. And by then they said, who cares? Now when yeah. something happens within a millisecond, it's around yeah. the world. And so it's more immediate in the reaction. Everything changes. You know, It is. Yeah. For example, today... Kenny Stabler was reported dead a few hours before he actually died, and then he did. <laughs> so I mean, it's you know, it's it's a whole new thing. And you know, when you're talking about things, and and Britney Spears sold all these records, and you know, and and that yeah. old sold all these Beatles signals. It, it, was, it was a totally different world in those days. So, oh yeah, it was. You know, the numbers, the the Beatles were just to give you an idea of how impressive they were prior to Meet the Beatles. The biggest selling, you know, rock album had probably sold about a quarter of a million units, and Meet the Beatles mm-hmm. sold three and a half million units in a couple of months. I mean, it. Right. You, you just can't understand how they just blew everything out of the water. It was, and, and the comparison was unbelievable. Well, Chuck, 1965 has the Beatles really almost repeating the same formula of 64. They're going to record LPs. They're going to make a film for United Artists. They head out on another North American tour. But what's different this time? What are they going to try that they didn't do in 64? And what won't they do in 65 that they did in 64? Any lessons learned? Yeah, so I want to get to that. But I wanted to chime in on the last question about that highlight of 1965. And I think for me and being the tour guy, I mean, selling out Shea, to the tune of 55,600 seats. I mean, it opened the doors. It opened the eyes of both musicians and promoters of bringing rock and roll to the masses. I mean, it would be interesting Mm -hmm. to speculate if Woodstock, Altamont, Live Aid, and other large-scale type concerts would have happened if Shea didn't happen. I mean, certainly Shea transformed the concert concert industry to a whole new level. But the Three things, I think, really quickly on the 1964 tour and the, and the differences is, is that Brian Epstein, first of all, realized he could make as much or more money touring in just half the time than he did in 1964. In mm-hmm. 1964, Brian had the boys play 215 performances, and in 1965, he had them do 78 shows. So for the 1965 North American tour, he and Norman Weiss from General Artist Corporation planned a tour that involved five stadiums. They only did three stadiums in 64 in America and five Coliseum or outdoor venues. So right. the difference was instead of one show at, say, Cincinnati Gardens or the Milwaukee Arena, they would always do two shows at those non-stadium venues. And instead of a 33-day tour they did in 1964, they made more money by only doing a 17-day tour in 1965, and partly the reason is their guarantee went up. In 64, Brian commanded about an average of $25,000 for a guarantee. In 65, he doubled it to $50,000. 
So secondly, they added more requests in their tour rider. Uh, so in 64, the tour rider was about a page long, if you could believe it. And in 1965, it, it morphed up to a page and a half. Okay, but this time <laughs> they specifically requested some things, which they didn't do in 1964. And here's an example of what they requested. Four cots, mirrors, an ice cooler, a portable TV set, and clean towels. Quite oh, modest by crazy. today's standards. Yeah. Lastly, <laughs> Brian Epstein's press officer, Tony Barrow, who had taken over for Derek Taylor, came up with the idea of an identification pass. <laughs> they wanted to change what they faced in 1964. And the pass was a way to determine who was in the Beatles party and who wasn't. So this yeah. is the first time we see something that is now standard in the industry. Yeah, so somebody had to, in, someone had to invent it, you know. And there it was, Tony <laughs> Barrow and the Beatles. <laughs> and the lanyard. Lanyard, not Had quite yet. <laughs> not quite yet, but they were—they definitely carried them in their wallets because I've seen a few that are pretty crinkled and, and torn up for people carrying them on the tour for two weeks. That is awesome, and those are—I so, mean, security. Suddenly, someone's waking up to the fact that we can't let just anyone roam backstage. I mean, that's a—that's a huge change right there. So, Bruce, what else? What What do you see? Some of the other changes that are happening on this this second go-around in North America, actually the third if you count the February trip. Yeah, I mean, you know, as they said, they're playing larger venues, uh, which is yeah. important in trying to maximize it. They also is a little bit more logic. The first tour, Brian viewed the United States as uh, England, you know. You can get everywhere quickly. And then he realized yeah. this time, you know, there was a little bit more planning to do things. Uh, and I think that was really important in a, in a good thing. Still at this time, though, they're still touring with very primitive equipment. And in the Beatles, even though Vox is making these super Beatle lamps and all these other things, they still you know, are going with primitive equipment. And the Beatles never do tour with good equipment. I think the Rolling Stones are probably the first major act to have you know, something in the semblance of a really good sound system on tour. But in spite right. of these you know, inadequate sound systems, they're doing a you know, tremendous concert of course, Shea Stadium is not only an important concert, but it becomes an important filmed event. And what is interesting to me about Shea is that George Harrison, years later, is interviewed about Shea, and he says, you know, we played Shea once, and someone tries to tell him, though, you know, you played it in the 66, and he denies it. And what's interesting about it is, is, is that the 65 show was so impactful on the Beatles that when right. they played it a year later, George completely forgot about it. It was an afterthought. That's they didn't sell out that year was. either. Right? It's the second year they didn't sell out, right? After the brouhaha with the controversy, the Jesus controversy and everything. Yeah, it showed the Beatles had peaked and nobody would ever listen to them again. <laughs> I mean, they were interviewing people in, front, interviewing people in front of Shea. Uh, you know, well, you know, they didn't sell out. You know, does this mean it's the end of the Beatles? You know, well, we know yeah, how that works. Yeah, yeah, And, of exactly. course, the one interview with the fan in an anthology that says, I like Herman and the Hermits. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I love it. Well, Al, I have to ask the big question. Did you go to the Shea Stadium concert? No. I never I never did see the group live. Uh, 
funny you were just talking about the second show, the 66 show. The morning yeah. of that show, there was an ad for it in the New York Daily News. And I briefly thought about it and then figured, well, you know, I live in New Jersey. It's a schlep to get all out to flushing. Um, it's, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to hear anything because it's going to be all <laughs> screaming. And besides, they'll be back next year. <laughs> well, of course, six <laughs> nights later, they played the last concert they would ever play at Camp yeah. Park. So no, oh, I never, man. never did see, never did see the group live, and never did see either George or John live. Oh my gosh, I yeah. I just hate it. Well, what about you? What do you what do you think differently on the '65 tour from '64? Anything stand out in your mind? Well, obviously the Shea Stadium is, as as Chuck said, uh, is is one of the epic concerts in the history of rock and roll because of the fact that it was the biggest pop music event to that point in time, uh, the, the biggest live concert to that point in time. And yes, it did point the way to to Monterey, to Woodstock, to mm-hmm. Watkins Glen, to all the big, you know, stadium and uh, beyond spectaculars. You know, it, it yeah. really began with... It was with a game changer, period. Exactly, you know. yeah. exactly. Yeah, and you look at their faces when they're running out on that field and the expression oh, on their yeah. faces, even they are shocked. <laughs> but I'd I mean, really it, like it to is see shocked. what King Curtis thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cannibal and the well, Headhunters, weren't they on there? Were they Were they one of the guys? That, yes. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, Al, I've been following everything you've been tweeting this year about why 65 is the most incredible year in music. You've been doing all these great YouTube videos on Twitter, and it's fascinating. If people aren't following you at, what is it, ASUS49? Um, ASUS49 on Twitter and uh, Al Sussman on Facebook. Well, I, and there's been the same posts that. Uh, that I post on Twitter automatically go over to Facebook. Okay, so you've been posting all of the things that made the year so incredible, and it's the same thing that Andrew talks about in his book, these other groups that are doing remarkable things. So what are some of the other groups that stand out in your mind who, you know, they inspire the Beatles, as Bruce pointed out a minute ago. They're also competition for the Beatles. So what's the biggie to you? Well, they weren't really competition. Because when you really look at it, they're really yeah. uh, the Beatles at that point in time. Their popularity in 1965, yeah. and they and in and indeed in the 1965, they were never again as universally popular as they were in 1965. Right. But their popularity had escalated to the point where they were absolutely the biggest pop group in right. the world. And despite the fact that in the spring of 65, there had been a little boomlet for Freddie and the Dreamers, and yeah. Herman's Hermits were racking up a lot of hits and, you know, were becoming, you know, teen magazine favorites. They were in no, by no stretch of the imagination, competition for the Beatles. And as for right. the Stones, it had taken them a year before they finally 
got the momentum going to become the number two band. But they were, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As, as at number two, they were so far behind the Beatles, it was Secretariat in the, the 1973 <laughs> Belmont. It was, I love were, it. So they really did not have any any real competition. And as I well, said, see, I'm now sure. that you're talking to someone that is, I'm in competition at any time. When I'm out for a walk, the person walking in front of me who has no idea I'm even walking behind them, we're in competition. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you can imagine that the Beatles, even if they know they're so far ahead that they can't see the other people, you know, they're, they're still hearing these people in the background. So, okay, so you mentioned the Stones, Hermits, Hermits. Who else is outstanding in your mind? Well, obviously the birds. Uh, yeah. Because in fact, they they became influences on the Beatles. You know, uh, by themselves. Well, that's uh, the old sponge yeah. effect. Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. It was they. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, Andrew mentioned the fact that when the Beatles were in L.A. late in August of six of sixty five, they indeed visited. A, uh, a birds recording session where they were doing uh, putting down tracks for what became the Turn 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 album, and right. uh, and and in fact um, uh, there's a track on Rubber Soul which I'll reference later on. Uh, which <laughs> if uh, I needed someone, right? Uh, yes, exactly. Which uh, <laughs> which in fact uh, harkens back to the birds and takes a couple yeah. of their of of McGuinn's, uh guitar licks, but I'll if I I'll needed someone to to steal a guitar riff from, yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Uh, okay, indeed. so Bruce, who do you see as as really standing out in that field in '65? The Beatles, the Birds, the Stones. Who else? I, I think the the Searchers had some good stuff sounding with the uh, jangling guitar sound. Um, I found it interesting that. Uh, the Dave Clark Five, who in '64 were singing "Catch Us If You Can" like they were ahead of the Beatles, had pretty much burned out. Although they had some things going, and I hope I'm not getting the the year wrong on this, Alan. If I am, shame on me. But uh, "Lies by the Knickerbockers" was that '65 or '66? That was the beginning of '66. Yeah, and you know, probably recorded in late '65. To me, one yeah. of the greatest John Lennon songs he never wrote. Absolutely. And yeah. um, <laughs> the other thing I. And, and the other thing I find interesting, when you think of all the great music in 1965, let's let's point out that the Grammys got it right that year, and Song of the Year went to Herb Albert and the Tijuana's Brass, A Taste of Honey. Wow. <laughs> Which Is that crazy? It, to, me is, to me, it's mind-boggling when you've got Satisfaction, Help, Yesterday, Like yeah. a Rolling Stone, you know, all this great stuff, and Song of the Year is A Taste of Honey, which, of course, the Beatles had done prior to Herb Albert doing it. Sure. But I well, you know what the song, song song of 66 is going to be question mark in the Mysterians with 96 Tears, and so there's no account. I mean, I love 96 Tears, but is it really the song of the year of 66? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> some, might, some might question it. Yes, yeah, some might. <laughs> All right, Chuck, jump in there. So you're what? What do you think? What? Who's Man, standing out to you my, in '65? You took all my favorites, but I, I think I'm with Al. I mean, for me, the the birds. I mean, having you know, growing up in California. I mean, 
it's just that it's quintessential, you know. And in my book, you know, I have images of David Crosby and Roger, Jim McGuinn, you know, visiting the group and hanging out with them at the Curson Terrace house in 66. And, of course, we know that they were there at the Benedict Canyon house in 65 in L.A. Uh when they were out on tour. That was really the only time they had a break from the tour, four or five days. And, you know, like Al was saying, I mean, I think they were enamored with each other and, and uh, you know, stole licks and, and uh, really enjoyed each other's music. So I, I, that, to me, would be my, my group. And the other thing and, about and nobody... the Burge, yeah, yeah, well, just quick on the Burge, they didn't just have great singles. If you listen to those albums, those albums are full of great songs. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And, the, you know, the Yardbirds and the Kinks, they were both going for uh, the sitar kind of sound before the Beatles got there, even though the Help soundtrack had it on the instrumentals. And then uh, David Crosby was telling uh, George about Ravi Shankar at the L.A. And then I think I read that um, they were back in in London in October, and they heard the Kinks See My Friends where they were trying to imitate the Indian sound, and they were like, oh, yeah. we've got to get a sitar on the next album. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. See My mm-hmm. Friends did not have a single Indian instrument on it, but it had that raga sound to it, very Indian-influenced. Right. Heart, Heartful of Soul by the Yardbirds would have beat the Beatles for sitar. They actually recorded a take with sitar, but it sounded real thin and whiny, so instead they did a guitar trying to make it sound like a sitar. Ah. George was able to actually get the sitar with help from the engineers at Abbey Road to sound right on a rock record, and that's no small feat, apparently. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. That's amazing. Well, well, no one has said a word about Motown, and that's one of the things I've enjoyed most on Al's tweets or his Motown tweets. So from the Motown school, anybody stand out? Smokey, no. they, they copped the... Um... Uh, Tracks of My Tears, they used that for the beginning of In My Life. It, it, wasn't that uh, yeah. Paul kind of borrowed that riff or developed it a little bit? A little bit, yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, all the great Motown stuff, Four Tops, of course, were really having a great year of Temptations. I mean, all the Motown records were just slamming through the Supremes. Uh, so, um, you know, Motown's a whole other thing. And, of course, everyone knows how much Motown influenced the Beatles and how the Beatles took a, an incredible song like Please, Mr. Postman, pushed the mm-hmm. beat slightly, and made it even better, if you can imagine that. And yeah. they uh, invited uh, Motown artist Brenda Holloway to go on tour with them. Yeah. Right. There you go. There and you they go. wanted to record it back, too. They, they, were, they, they, were, they were riding their, their engineers. They couldn't make the bass sound as good as uh, the Stax records, like Wilson Pickett. So they, next year yeah. they thought about going there, but Stax wanted too much money or something. No, really. That would have changed things. Well, Bruce, I know I'm really going to put you on the spot with this question because you could list 20 things and not cover it. But in 65, what stands out to you as the Beatles' five best, five best songs? All right, and in doing so, I'm going to leave out about 15 best, as you say. Uh, (laughs) Ticket to Ride, an incredible riff, an incredible sound, and I love that coda at the end. You know, just a surprise ending out of nowhere. Help, not only great lyrics, but the Beatles are doing this call and response thing, which has its roots back in, you know, gospel music. So, you know, that's a great thing. Yesterday, a timeless melody, you got to put it in your top five. In my life, brilliant lyrics, uh, George Martin's piano solo, 
sped up uh, by the magic of Abbey Road, turns it into a harpsichord Baroque solo. And the fifth one, boy, that's tough. I'm going to go with Nowhere Man because, once again, of great lyrics and also the Beatles pushing the boundaries on sound where Mm -hmm. John and George are doubling up on Fender Stratocasters with the treble at a maximum with a sound I'd never heard before. So that, those will be my five, and the rest of you can name the other fifteen I forgot. Like, you know. <laughs> All right, go, Chuck. What do you say, oh, Chuck? Oh man, this is so hard, but I'm gonna do it. And remember, I'm gonna go off the the albums of you know when they came out in '65. So yeah. For me, it's got to be Drive My Car. I mean, I wish they would have put it in the set list in their uh, concert tours. They didn't. Uh, the False Start. I've just seen a face. <laughs> Definitely Day Tripper. Another girl and an oldie, but came out in '65. Bad boy, Beatles six. Come on, that is a great <laughs> song. It is a great song. It, it, it is, is one and of the it, best. And we would not have that song but for Capitol Records butchering the Beatles and asking for new songs. Mm-hmm. That's so, true. Thank you, Capitol. Amen to that's that. That's true. Song. That's that's very true. Okay, Al, what do you say? Well, actually, I'm gonna duplicate. Uh, some things from both Bruce's and Chuck's list. Uh, Ticket to Ride, for the reasons uh, Bruce stated. Uh, Bad Boy, which has one of the all-time greatest vocals by one of the all-time, one of rock and roll's classic vocalists. And one thing about Bad Boy, I want to jump in on that. You need to listen to the Larry Williams version And and then the Beatles, (laughs) and you hear the brilliance. Larry Williams, the kid's a juvenile delinquent. John Lennon, he's a rock and roll rebel. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a difference. So, okay, so Ticket to Ride, Bad Boy. Bad Boy, You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, which is another another uh, Dylan-inspired Lennon song, perhaps inspired by Brian Epstein. You know, yeah. it's not hasn't been documented, but possibly. Uh, yesterday, the you know, uh, not too much needs to be said about yesterday that hasn't mm-hmm. been said already for 50 years. And um, the one I mentioned before, if I needed someone, uh, wanted to throw a, a George Harrison song in there because uh, Rubber Soul and well, Help and Rubber Soul are really the albums where George's songwriting begins to really mature and right. if i needed someone is a is a wonderful folk rock song obviously influenced by the birds with uh, a guitar lick that was taken from the bells of rimney and mm-hmm. another bird song that i'm not mm-hmm. that i'm blanking out on oh that um, she don't care about time was it yes Thank so, you, yeah. Andrew. Yep, that's it. Yeah. All right, Andrew, uh, we're going to give you the last word on it. And I, I love these lists. I mean, I, I'm, I'm tending more toward I like all of the ones on Al's list, but let's hear what you got. Give it to us, Andrew. Well, for the for the you know for their uh, historical import, you have to do like as everybody's been saying, ticket to ride yesterday, help, and then I would you know nowhere man, and I would throw Norwegian wood in there just for its influential. But for a personal yeah. favorite, you know, I love. Uh, I've just seen a face, uh, you know, that. But uh, can't really say that equals the other ones in terms of influence or anything. And and the trend that we're seeing here in '65, almost every one of you has named a list predominantly Lennon. But starting in '66, yeah. 
things are going to change. I mean, this is the last hurrah for John in 65, and, and he after this point, his dominance of the group begins to diminish. And it's very interesting to watch the abrupt change. Um, now, Al, we nobody mentioned about Michelle, this. by the way. Speaking of that, like Michelle, nobody threw Michelle yeah, true. in uh, a huge song. Like I said, it's only <laughs> It's hard. That's a hard question, I know. Well, Al and I have been talking about this for a couple of weeks, and Bruce kind of weighed in on this when he was on the program a few weeks ago. But just for fun, throwing it out there, capital version of the Help LP or Parlophone version of the Help LP, which do you prefer? I'm voting for capitals, and I've got an article coming out about this in a couple of weeks, simply because I like the classic soundtrack. I even like the instrumentals that are added in, and I feel like it's a stronger offering of only songs that end up in the top 40 and really are solid hits with the fans, whereas the Parlophone version has some that are extremely strong and some that are not so strong. So I'm I'm going with Capital. Al, you go, because I know you have a different opinion. Right. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I have to go with the Parlophone uh, version uh, for two reasons. First of all, because I've never been crazy about the Ken Thorne instrumentals on uh, on the uh, the Capital uh, help. Uh, I don't didn't like them nearly as much as I like right. the George Martin instrumentals on the Hard Day's Night soundtrack the previous year. But also sure. because on side two, you've got, again, um, clues to the new direction. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've, got, you've got two songs, uh, I've Just Seen a Face, two John, uh, well, not, not two John Lennon songs, a John Lennon song, It's Only Love, and a Paul McCartney song, uh, I've Just Seen a Face that led off the two sides of the capital version of Rubber Soul and perhaps, in the opinion of many, gave that album, gave the American version of that album even more of a folky, folk rock flavor than, uh, you know, than uh, the songs that led off the side uh, the sides of the uh, of the the, the Parlophone LP. Uh, right. And also, you've also you've got you've got yesterday. Again, mm-hmm. not much is not much uh, needs to be said. You've got you like mm-hmm. me too much, which um, I, a lot of people have kind of poo pooed as kind of a minor George Harrison song, but mm-hmm. uh, it's one that I've always I've I liked from the moment I heard it on first heard it on Beatles Six. Uh, right. And I, you know, I think it shows the the beginning maturation of his songwriting. Uh, you've also got another classic um, uh, Larry Williams cover in Dizzy Miss Lizzie. So right. um, I just feel that the that that side is you know not only up to the quality of the the soundtrack songs, but uh, I feel the whole package holds together very, very well. Works for you better. Okay, Bruce, how about you? Well, that's that's a tough one because uh, I'm just going to cop out and say it's like comparing a great red wine and a great white wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do I like about the Parlophone album? Everything I was saying, but with one caveat, I think I've just seen a face in particular is kind of buried on side two, and boy, Capital opens up Rubber Soul with it, and it's such a great song. It shouldn't be buried on the second side of an album. Um, right. The right. other thing, and the thing that I love about the Capitol album is it combined 
two of the favorite bees I had growing up with, the Beatles and Bond. And, uh, you know, that opening, <laughs> you know, Help is a great song without it. But let's face it, when you put the two together, it's something unique that you have to listen to every now and then. And I think hearing the Beatles songs played on in, in instruments to me is kind of cool. And then also it uh-huh. leads up to a great trivia question because one of the classical pieces that Ken Thorne puts in it uh, was also in a Marx Brothers movie. So there is actually one song that's in both a Beatles film and a Marx Brothers film, which I thought ah. huh. If you see At the Circus, at the end when the symphony is kind of on a, on a barge and the barge is cut loose and going out to sea, the symphony is playing. Uh-huh. Dun, 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 yes, dun. yes, yes. So, anyway, fun trivia question there. Uh, both great albums in their own right. And uh, I know that's a cop-out, but I'm going to cop-out on that one because I, I... No, like I like that. I mean, it, it's okay. true. That they are both great. They really are. All right, Chuck, do you have a preference? Oh, for me, Parlophone, end of story. And as that once famous record company told Brian Epstein, guitar groups are on the way out, instrumental <laughs> albums are on the way out. <laughs> I want all Beatles wall-to-wall. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All right, Andrew, you got the last word. Um, uh, just a, a few quick things. One is I think Paul must have, a couple months later, he must have been like, ah, in Help the Movie, I have another girl in the night before, but then now I've got Yesterday and I've just seen a face, and I didn't quite have him in time to be in the Help movie. I think uh, that it seems too bad, you know, he just missed the deadline for those two classics. Because, yeah, they're buried at the very end, but... um. Uh, also, I like Act Naturally. kind of you guys were talking about the sponge effect of the Beatles. Um, '64 influenced Buck Owens. You know the Bakersfield country sound. Uh, they they kind of soaked that up a little bit, and Act Naturally was like the kind of apogee, or however you say it, of that. And um, I always thought, you know, like you, you at one point we were talking about um, mentioning difference between '64 and '65. I, I think they should have got the writer from A Hard Day's Night for the writer for Help. That was the biggest difference in the years for me, you know. I think, uh, I think that was the big, the only letdown of the year. You know, the screenwriter of the movies, you know, kind of went down. Right, right, right. But you're you're weighing in on the the parlophone side. Parlophone. Parlophone. I guess I'm all by myself. <laughs> Although Bruce, I think you voted capital last time. Well, as I said, it's red wine and a right wine. So <laughs> they're both both great in their own way. Uh, they are. They are. Steak tonight, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I ain't having fish. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the American right, help must have... have led George on his whole Indian thing, right? Is that what really got George going? Do you think? On yeah, I, I think Indian? that you know that that is a key thing to keep in mind. That you know, and and things happen for a reason. One of the, to me, I'm sure we've, you know, we've done shows on it. The Beatles' greatest failure was failing the deck audition because yeah. instead of Mike Smith, they get George Martin. Now, yeah. George Martin, <laughs> George Martin was rightfully upset that he didn't get to be musical director for Help, mm, and sure. Dick Lester put in his buddy Ken Thorne. But if he hadn't done that, and George and Paul hadn't picked up sitars on the set of Help. Would we have had sitar on Norwegian wood? I don't know if we would have. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing Ken Thorne did that soundtrack after all. Mm. Right. Maybe. Everything happens for a reason. Mm Mm-hmm. It 
Absolutely. Well, we are coming up. We only have eight and a half minutes left, and we are almost out of time. We talked, Bruce, we we didn't include you because we couldn't get you this afternoon, but I'm putting you on the spot right now. We are going to do part two of this show next Thursday night because there are so many things we didn't get to. And people Uh were writing me all afternoon and saying, can we call in tonight? We want to talk to Chuck. We want to talk to Andrew. We want to talk to Bruce, Al. And I had to say, no, you can't because we have so much to cover. So we're going to reconvene. (laughs) (laughs) Next Thursday, can you be with us next Thursday night at the same time? I I would love to. That would be great. This is such a great group of people. Uh, It is a wonderful group. So we'll just plan to cover some of the things we didn't get tonight, next Thursday night, and then we'll open the phone lines for people to call in and discuss some of this. But before we close tonight, I know that all of you are going to be at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans. Give us a quick, I know you don't know time or day yet, but what will you be talking about at the Fest? And Al, we'll start with you. What what are you going to be doing August 14th through 16th at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare? Well, I'm going to be a little bit of everywhere. Uh, I'm going to be bouncing from uh, from one room to the other, uh, helping out Tom Frangione with uh, Name That Tune, uh, uh, helping out, help, helping Wally Pedrazic with the panel discussions and author uh, presentations. So I, uh, uh, people will be t- thoroughly sick of seeing me by Sunday. But, uh, but but Friday night, as a, and also, uh, as a matter of fact, Andrew and I are going to be doing uh, something on 1965. I think it may be in the what's known as the Fabratory, but we're not, that's not certain yet. The schedules are still okay. being made. But Friday night, with uh, uh, this, this worked very well at the Rye uh, New York uh, Beatles Fest in, uh, in mm-hmm. March. Uh, Bruce and Chuck and I did a uh, did a three person look at the Beatle year of 1965, and it it worked so well that we're gonna uh, we're gonna do it again uh, in Chicago. So it'll be late-ish in the evening on Friday night, but uh, no times are set yet. Good deal. And that is something to really look forward to. We're giving people a preview of that with this these two shows. So fantastic. And Bruce, do you know what you'll be talking about? Well, I'll, I'll be on the panel with Al on Friday night, which we'll we'll be calling Beatly Correct Without, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh-huh. Uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday, I will be doing more of 1965, I think, in one of the smaller, more intimate rooms, playing some of the music and the outtakes from the Beatles' musical output in 65. And uh, Saturday, I'll be doing a talk on the the, Capitol, uh, the Beatles' story on Capitol Records, which will be a lot of images and music and cover a lot of stuff. And the, the singles book is out on Beatle.net, the album book I'm working on now. And next year... When we get to the 50th anniversary of yesterday and today, I'll have some incredible stuff on the butcher and trunk covers for you. Ah, can't wait. Can't wait. All right, uh, Andrew, any ideas? Um, Do you know what you'll be doing? I, well, Al, as, men- as Al mentioned, we'll, we'll be doing a 1965 talk. And uh, I don't know if it's totally confirmed yet, but I'm hoping, in a, kind of alluding to what you were talking to with the rise of McCartney in relation to Lennon, I'm, I'm hoping to do a, a talk on uh, uh, John's Beatles songs versus Paul's Beatles songs or a comparison of both of them year by year, 
kind of their different yeah. relationship and how they, you know, they kind of branched out and the different flavors they did and how, yeah, Paul, uh, you know, kind of, first it was John dominating, then Paul kind of came up and then John yeah. kind of caught back up in 68, you know, kind of look at their the whole arc of their their Beatles composition years. Love it. That sounds interesting. And Chuck, last but not least, tell us what you'll be doing. Sure. Well, you're going to meet all of us at the Meet the Authors panel on Friday night, which is always nice to see us. And, of course, at our tables in the marketplace, you'll see all of our, including Jude. Um, and the our book. panel that, uh, that yeah. uh, Alan Bruce mentioned, I really enjoyed that last, last year, and we have a great time uh, doing that. So that's late Friday night. And then I'm doing a early morning special in the main ballroom on Sunday, that's, I think, like 11.15 or something. It's going to be a multimedia presentation on the 1965 tour. Wow. I love it. I love it. Well, for those of you out there who have not gotten these gentlemen's books, you need to. Chuck's book, Some Fun Tonight, two-volume set. Al's book, Changing Times, 101 Days. That what, Al? The Shape of Change. A generation, changed a generation, 1965, the most revolutionary year in music by Andrew Grant Jackson. And Bruce, who has a plethora of books, has his brand new The Beatles on Capitol Records ebook. So go to Amazon.com or TheFest.com, order these books, read them before the fest so that you can go on Friday night or go to the laboratory when Andrew and Al will be speaking and take part in their discussions. Bring your book along with you and get these people to sign it for you. If you get Bruce's ebook, you're going to get this collector's bookmark that you'll be able to bring to him to have signed. They're all happy to do that. They'll be in the marketplace. And until then, you can follow them on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Keep up with what's going to be happening and then join us next Thursday night on the 9, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, when we will do part two of 1965 with Chuck, Al, Andrew, and Bruce. Thank you guys all so much for being here tonight. I know I put you on the spot with some of these questions, but I really appreciate you being here with me. Yeah, pleasure, Thank Jude. you, Jude. Thank, Thank you. Jude. Thank you for having us. Well, we, I Thank loved it, and I can't wait for next week. And so until next week... From all of us to all of you, ta and shine on. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.